Jefferson lead the Anthem Church in Thousand Oaks. They oversee the family of churches, the Anthem family of churches. The most recent plant is in Denver, which is doing fabulously well. And then thirdly, they are part of the six couples with Chris and Merrill, who, owe, who you lead Genesis Collective and our global church planning initiatives. And we're in about 18 countries around the world. So we, we have many layered partnerships. We're going to enjoy you tonight, Matt. I, I sneakingly suspect we're going to enjoy you tonight. So have the time of your All life. Right. Enjoy us cool. as we enjoy you. Sounds good. Sounds delightful. Thank you, Chris. Um, all right. Well, you know, I'm 41 years old, and at 41, you're always you're looking for something to feel just a little bit cool. And um, one of the things that you know just kind of gave me a little boost is that my 16-year-old started borrowing my clothes, which is pretty awesome. Uh, that he fits into them and that he thought they were decent enough that he would wear them and this shirt being one of them and then I put it on this morning to come down here and uh, had a giant like a bean burrito landed on the pocket and I had walked out of the shirt with it or out of the house with it not even thinking twice about this but there is the entirety of the contents of a bean burrito on it so I'm grateful for a wife that could scrub that off while we're in transit and uh, not present myself. Oh, no, no, she just took care of it just right on there. Yeah, it was, I'm sorry. I don't know why the topless detail would be important, but that's okay, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's it. All right. Um, well, I mentioned that I'm 41. That means I grew up in the 80s, and I, uh, my family was a movie family. Did you guys grow up as a movie family? Anybody like to? Okay, yeah. There was this kind of uh, theme in the 80s and 90s. If there was like any kind of religious character and any kind of even remotely sinful thing happened in a church building, there was always some hyper-religious priest or pastor that would say something like, this is a house of God. Okay, it was, just a, it was just a line that happened all the time. And the problem with that line, this is a house of God, is that it just isn't, uh, it isn't true. That's not the reality of what the house of God is. The idea of being, let me scoot back a little bit and see if that helps. I don't know if that would help or not, but uh, the idea of the house of God is something that... Uh, to be totally honest, if we look at church buildings all over the place, we see them, we look at them, maybe you even have this picture in your mind that they are holy places. Maybe you've heard the word sanctuary before, which actually it's, it's like a holy room. And the, again, problem with that is it's been a really long time since God's presence inhabited a building. The last time God's presence inhabited a building was the temple in Jerusalem and that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and Ezekiel prophesied way before that that the presence of God would depart that temple. So his presence is not in any kind of a physical building. We have a storyline of how God's presence interacts with the world. We see in the garden that God walked with man in the garden, right? So his presence was there with us on the earth. And then as the fall happened, God removes his presence. And we see a little bit later on in the story that the tabernacle and then later on the temple is built and God's presence inhabited the tabernacle. It inhabited the temple. It was in the Holy of Holies 
when the tabernacle would move, there is that pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night indicating the presence of God would go and Israel would literally go and stop based on whether the presence of God was going and stopping. Anybody ever wish that there was just a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire to follow and that would make your decisions for you? That would be a little easier sometimes. But then we have that departure. God's presence leaves the temple. The next time his presence enters the picture is in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Christ. God entered humanity in the physical form of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God's presence. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we have the very presence of Christ. And then Jesus tells us, hey, it's better for you if I go because actually when he goes, he can then send the Spirit. And that's the next era of God's presence with us is it inhabits the church, the people of God. His presence comes and is in us and with us. And then the last version of God's presence that we'll see is in Revelation 21, where we see the new Jerusalem come down and God's presence inhabits the entirety of the earth. And so we have this storyline of God's presence with us and not with us, with us and not with us. And right now, the presence of God, the era that we are in, is that one where Jesus came and then said, it's better for you if I go, and Jesus ascends into heaven, and then he sends his spirit, and his spirit currently resides in the people who have given their lives in faith to Jesus. So anyone that's in Christ has received the Spirit of God, and with that, you have God's presence residing in you. And until Jesus comes again and his glory fills the entirety of the earth, God's presence goes where his church goes. That's the current state of the presence of God, is with us and in us. What I want to do is I want to talk about why this era is so important. Understanding your role as a vessel of the presence of God, but it's not just you personally. We actually talk about the y'all. Anybody from the South, Texas? Yes? Okay. You know what I'm talking about. You're feeling that. You know what y'all means. I'm guessing y'all know what y'all means, but that's okay. There's this idea that we see in Ephesians 2 that we're going to talk about as it relates to the presence of God and how it goes with us as a collective people. So if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 19 through 21. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21 says this. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, first thing we're going to talk about, your identity rests in you being a member of the household of God. So if you're a follower of Jesus, your new identity, you're given a new identity. Okay, Paul writes and says, anyone that is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. 
that idea of you having a new identity is described all throughout the New Testament. Because of the work that Jesus did, accomplishing for you this access, we see that in Ephesians 2, 18, check that out, that's worth it. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So because of Jesus' work, you have access to the Father and you're given this new identity and Paul writes about it. He says this, you're no longer aliens and strangers. That used to be something that described you. Some of you guys grew up in the church. Kristen told you that we met in the toddler zone in the, uh, in, in the church growing up. We literally grew up in it. My dad planted a church in 1979. That was the year that I was born. I, grew, I could not have grown up in the church more. He actually started the church three days before I was born, June 17, 1979. Now that I've had kids, I kind of think, Dad, you could have chosen any other Sunday. Like, it's just not that hard to pick a different Sunday, but whatever, that's fine. So I grew up in that setting. Some of you guys are newer to the story. Maybe Tyler gets up here and starts singing a song and you don't know the words and it just makes you feel a little bit, a little bit distant from everybody. Some of the people are raising their hands and, and you've never done that before and you just feel like, okay, that's different. I don't know why somebody would do that. Or, or the, the preacher guy says, open up to Ephesians chapter two and you have no idea what Ephesians is or why we would open up to it. And it just makes you feel further and further and further away from the story and the things of the church kind of push you away and maybe you start to feel like a lesser than in the group. And Paul's writing and he says, well, actually, let me tell you about your identity in Christ. Even if you feel distant, even if you feel like a misfit, even if you would self-identify as somebody that doesn't fit in in the church, if you're in Christ, you're wrong. Believe it or not, you can be wrong about how you feel. I don't know if you know that. Your feelings are not always the absolute truth. Can I get an amen? So you might feel distant and God's saying, hold on. See, actually, through Jesus, I gave you access to the Father, so now you're no longer aliens and strangers. You're no longer misfits. You no longer do not belong, but instead, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is God speaking truth over you, and when God speaks truth over you, what should you do? Listen. When God speaks truth over you, you receive it, and you believe it, and you adopt the reality that he is identifying for you, and you let it change the way you think and feel. When God speaks truth over you, it should change you. And so he says, you're no longer aliens and strangers. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. So let's talk about a household for a minute. A household, uh, you know, it's just the idea of who lives in your house. It's tax time. We're getting close to that. Do any of you pay taxes? I don't know. But the idea of a household is typically the people that are dependent on you, who you are responsible for. But in this first century, a household was actually bigger than that. Usually you would have a patriarch that was like a, a grandparent 
And then you would have all the aunts and uncles kind of living in the compound. You'd have the cousins. It would be a larger concept. This idea of a household was typically pretty big in the first century. So they had an idea of a big household, not necessarily a small nuclear four-person or 2.5-person household, whatever the average is here in America. That was not necessarily the context. And God says, you are a member of my household. Actually, we'll take the tax time uh, analogy. You are my dependent. You're dependent on me. I am the patriarch of this family and you're a part of my family. I'm accountable for you because of what Jesus has done. He's given you access. I've brought you into the family. You've been adopted in and now you bear my name. You belong to me. You're mine. You are members of the household of God. Now, have you ever heard somebody mix metaphors or you ever done that? You're telling a story and you just kind of jump metaphors accidentally. Anybody ever done that? Paul does that here. It's biblical. You can mix metaphors anytime you want. Paul starts off talking about the household, which is a family concept. And then he goes into architecture, just jumps right straight to architecture. And he talks about the building of the house of God. And this is what he says. You are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay, so Paul is identifying this house that God is building. And you're a part of the house. He's going to talk about the materials. He's going to start with the foundation and then he's going to go to the building materials and he's going to identify each person who's given their life to Jesus as the materials that God is using to build the house. But he starts with the foundation. So let's start there. First and foremost is this idea of the cornerstone. Now we don't, anybody studying architecture, thinking about going into building of some kind, any kind of, not a single one. I didn't expect that at all. Guys, we need some engineers. We need some builders. We need some architects. Who's going to step up to that one? Okay. We don't really use cornerstone technology anymore. This was maybe more an ancient kind of understanding of construction, but it's how they would build these massive structures without really a lot of the technology that we have now. The idea of the cornerstone was huge. You go to the, in the, the 90s, the architects, not architects, the uh, archaeologists, those are the ones, they uncovered the cornerstone of the temple back in the 90s. You know how big the cornerstone was? The cornerstone of the temple in Jerusalem was 55 feet long, 14 feet deep, and 16 feet high. The walls were built based on what that cornerstone could hold. If the cornerstone could hold the load, then they could make the building bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the the size and the strength of the cornerstone, it was 55 feet long, it was 14 feet deep and 16 feet high. That is a massive piece of stone when you consider that temple being built thousands of years ago. So when you think about a building being built, the strength of the cornerstone establishes the scope of the structure. And Paul identifies Jesus himself as the cornerstone of what's being built, meaning infinite structure capacity. Jesus is the cornerstone, so there is no end to the size and scope and capacity of the structure that God is building. That's huge. 
Now he talks about the foundation of apostles and prophets. So let's talk about the rest of the foundation. He looks to the apostles and prophets. Kristen and I bought a house six years ago in Thousand Oaks. Uh, we learned the story of the houses that we bought. We bought in a certain neighborhood that was built back in the, in the early 1960s. And the guy that built these houses was an absolute crook, like seriously rotten to the core. So what he did is uh, he would, you know, do the, all the bulldozing. See, I'm not a builder. I didn't study that. So bulldozing, leveling, grading, that whole thing. I don't know what it's called. But he does all that for all of these houses. And then he lays down the rebar for the foundations, gets it signed off in the city. And then after the city inspector leaves, he pulled all the rebar, all the metal that's supposed to go in the concrete. He pulled it and moved it to the next development and then poured the cement without any metal in it, without any rebar. So every single house in my neighborhood has structural issues. Our foundations are all cracked, all of them. Some of them very bad. I don't know if you guys are Californians, but we have earthquakes every now and again. Some of these foundations, like huge cracks. There are a couple of houses in our neighborhood where they had to actually hoist the house up, jackhammer the entire foundation, lay down some rebar, and redo the entire foundation. For ours, it wasn't so bad. We had this huge, I don't know, like four-inch thick crack that went through our foundation, so we poured this epoxy in it. I didn't pour the epoxy. Some professional concrete guy poured some epoxy in there and said that should hold for a good 30 years or so unless we have a major earthquake, which never happens in California. We're fine. But the reality is, because of all of those cracked foundations, almost every wall in our house, we can't hang anything. I get stuff from Ikea perfectly level, and it still shows up as totally wonky on a wall because we don't have a single wall that, that looks right. No window goes in right. Everything is totally out of order. Our roof is slanted, everything. Because if the foundation's off, the entire house goes haywire. And so God has put this massive investment in the foundation of his household. He put the cornerstone that is Jesus and then he establishes through the apostles and prophets a foundation that will build, that will last. So what is it that apostles and prophets do that bring a foundational element to the church? The first and foremost is the thing that Paul talks about when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men and women who will teach others also. This picture of... It's, it's just going to keep going? All right. I only have one good ear. I'm deaf in this ear. This is my good ear. So all I can hear is that right now. So I'm trusting you guys can hear me. All right. So Paul has received the gospel. It's been given to him by Jesus. Just, you know. You know, it's Sunday at five. Who needs a custom hitch on Sunday at five? Because these guys are open for business, right? All right. Custom hitches and moving supplies. That's it. All right. So Paul takes the gospel that he was given by Jesus and he takes it into each local church and he invests the gospel into every local church. That's what he does. So he tells the Thessalonians, we came to you and we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Then he tells the Ephesians, he goes to Ephesus for three years he preaches the gospel in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, I learned this about the hall of Tyrannus. I know Chris has talked to us about this before. He may have talked to you guys about this. But the hall of Tyrannus would have only been available for Paul to teach during siesta time. 
meaning all of Ephesus went home and took a nap from about one to about four. And that's when Paul would have been able to teach in the hall of Tyrannus. So it was only the really dedicated people that vacated siesta to go and learn from Paul in the hall of Tyrannus. I just thought, man, those are people that really want it. Anybody ever lived in Spain before? Because the siesta just sounds like the greatest thing that was ever invested, invented in the history of mankind. All right. Feels like it's finally running out of gas. We'll see if I can charge it up for another round. So what Paul did as an apostle is he took the gospel and he planted it into every church, every community that he went into. He preached Jesus. He established Jesus as the cornerstone and made it the central component of every church that he planted. That's what apostles do. They establish Jesus. There's more that they do. They set our eyes to the nations. Apostles help us plant more churches. Apostles, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3, they're master builders, so they lay the foundation that can establish more churches, more communities, more discipleship. This is what apostles do. So God gave us these apostles to establish the foundation. Then he talks about prophets. What do prophets do? Prophets hear the voice of God and prophets defend the heart of God. We actually, in the narrative of Acts, we don't have a lot of evidence of the foundational role of the prophets in each local church. We see in Acts 13 that there is a group of prophets and teachers that were praying. We see Agabus, we see Philip's daughters, we see prophecy happening all throughout the book of Acts, all throughout the New Testament. But that foundational role that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.20 is actually a little bit of a mystery. But what we gather from this is as the churches are being established, as the big C church is being established, it's established on the power of the gospel through the word of the apostles, and it's established on hearing God's voice and defending God's heart. What does God want? more even than what do we want. Now, what you would see if you kept reading into Ephesians 4 is that there are more gifts that Jesus distributed to the church to build it up, to build it up to maturity because there's more work than laying a foundation. But Paul in Ephesians 2.20 wants to make sure that you understand the foundation is built on the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, here's why I'm telling you all this. The church is so important to God that he established it with Jesus as the cornerstone and then gave apostles and prophets to ensure that the foundation of the household of God, that every person that is built on top of that is built in such a way that this structure can grow and sustain and expand for generations and generations to come. We're in a world right now where the church is not viewed very highly. You may even struggle a little bit with the church. There are a lot of people, there are even a couple of books. There's one book, I don't even remember who wrote it. It says, I like, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Something like that. I don't like Christians. I like Jesus, but I don't like his people. <laughs> Something along those lines. And maybe that's been your experience. I love the idea of Jesus. I love spirituality. You know what? I connect with Jesus when I'm out in the water surfing. I connect with Jesus when I'm out in the forest. I connect with Jesus when I'm on the snow on top of a mountain. I connect with Jesus in nature. I don't connect with Jesus in church. I struggle in this kind of an environment. 
this isn't really my thing. This isn't really where I do my spirituality. This is something else. But here's the reality is that God is invested in his house. He's invested in his church. He's put all of his energy, all of his effort into establishing his church as the vessel for his presence here on earth. Let me talk about that for just a minute. Paul talks about both you yourself being a temple of the Holy Spirit, and he also talks about y'all being a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Paul's speaking about sexual immorality, and when he, when he talks about sexual immorality, this idea of somebody being with somebody that is not their husband or not their wife, he deals with that and says, actually, that's unacceptable, and here's his reasoning why. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So there's one element of theology that you yourself, your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. When you give your life to Jesus, you're filled by the Holy Spirit and your physical person becomes a container of the presence of God. Did you know that? That if you're a Christian, you are a container, you are a temple of the presence of God. Paul says it again to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's what he calls you there, an earthen vessel to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. So each one of you individually has the presence of God. So if you have the presence of God all by yourself, why then would you need the church? Why does Paul write this to the Ephesians and talk about the household of God being built up into a structure? Why is that even remotely important if you yourself are a temple of the Holy Spirit? It's because Jesus said that it's more important that you together demonstrate who I am than you alone demonstrate who I am. See, you alone do not demonstrate Jesus to the world but you in community do demonstrate Jesus to the world. I should probably soften that statement. You alone can demonstrate Jesus in ways to the world. Yes. But Jesus called us to this idea of community, the church, to show the true picture of who he is to the world. This is going to sound a little crazy, but he doesn't call you his bride. He calls y'all his bride. He calls the church his bride and says that he's, he's jealous for his bride. God wants his bride to be a picture of who he is to this broken and hurting and fallen world. And so what that means is that we together need to figure out what it means to be the household of God. Paul tells us later in Ephesians 4 that we need to make every effort to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because when we're together, well, there's something unique that happens. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. When we're together, in Him, verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Now you look at that and say, wait, I'm already a dwelling place for God by his spirit. My body is a temple. Paul wrote that to the Corinthians. He knows that theology. And now he's telling you that you, the church, you are a different kind of dwelling place for the presence of God. Let's take a look at one passage. This is in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to the very end. It's one chapter before the last chapter in the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So there's coming a day when the presence of God will occupy the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth. It will be all the presence of God. So what we are now as the church, ready for a big word? We are an eschatological people. The word eschatological means the study of end times. That's what eschatology is. Being an eschatological people means we are a picture of the future kingdom of God that will one day take over the entirety of the earth. And so you, as the church, get to demonstrate heaven to a broken and hurting world. You, as the church, get to show a picture of Jesus for all eternity to a broken and hurting and disconnected world. While Paul writes to you and says you are no longer aliens and strangers, that is if you are a follower of Jesus, meaning if somebody is not a follower of Jesus, they are an alien and a stranger to the kingdom of God. And God is not about that. He wishes that none would perish. God desires that all mankind would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. It is God's heartbeat that every single person would call his household their own. God's passion is for every soul, every person, everywhere. So how do we connect those dots? A broken and hurting world and us having the presence of God. There's a, a guy from, well, he's from Ireland, but now he uh, lives here in Anaheim. His name's Alan Scott. He wrote a book called Scattered Servants. It's a high recommend. Talks about a, uh, a beautiful revival that took place in Coleraine, Northern Ireland. And he writes this. He says, the dream of God over your life is not that you become a believer and help out the local church. That would be a low-key dream. The dream of God over your life is that you come alive in his presence and bring life to every environment, spilling contagious hope into hurting humanity. God has entrusted believers with an assignment to lead the earth into life. This is the reality of you. You have been called by God. 
you have been filled by God and then you have been joined by God to one another. And then God has called on all of you together to carry his presence into a broken and hurting world, spilling contagious hope into a hurting humanity. This world needs, needs the presence of God. They need to experience his presence. That's all we have to give. The gospel is access. Through Jesus, you have been given access to the Father. That's Ephesians 2.18. The gospel delivers us into the presence of God. We have the gospel to deliver people into the presence of God. That's why we have the ministry and the message of reconciliation. We are helping people experience God's presence. That's what we have to give. And the way that it happens... It's through the church. Here's why I felt compelled to share this. Chris gave me uh, the wide open slate. I, any of you are preachers and somebody invites you to come out and share and says, teach on whatever you want. It's probably the most intimidating thing in the world because you just sit there and you're like, whatever I want. That's a big Bible and there's a lot to go through. Um, but I, I was, uh, actually a, a word came, uh, we were on a call, what call was that with Nick and Kutti? It was the Apest cohort. And Chris asked his, uh, his sweet friends who have become our sweet friends that live in South Africa, Nick and Kutti Hardy, have they been here? Yeah. Uh, in the previous building. In the previous building. And they shared this prophetic word, and one of the, one of the words that, uh, that they shared is that God is jealous for his church. That God is jealous for his church. And that's just been rolling around in my head. Because honestly, I don't know what it's like down here in Orange County in our area. People do not look at the church and say, whoa, look at those amazing people. They're not looking at Christians and saying, those are just the most incredible, mercy-filled, faith-filled, patient, kind, good gentle people that have ever walked the face of the planet, I want to walk with them. At this exact moment, that's not our reputation. And that picture of God being jealous for his church just sat with me. Why would God be jealous for us? What does he want for this world? He wants Revelation 21. His presence to inhabit the whole earth. And his plan, through the foundation of Jesus and the apostles and prophets, was to build up a household to carry his presence into a broken world. God is not going to bypass his own plan to bring the world to himself. We could want him to, we could wish that he chooses a different means other than the church to deliver the presence of God to a broken world. But his plan is the household of God, the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, filled by the spirit of God to deliver the presence to a hurting world. That is the plan of God. Maybe it's reluctant. Maybe you wish that we could all just honestly go solo individual, go on mission. Let's just, let's just get out there and do our own thing and we'll leave the church behind. The church is the old way of doing it. We have a new way. But that's not God's way. God says, I'm all in on the church. 
I had one cornerstone to give. It's huge. It's Jesus, and I gave it to the church. I laid that foundation. I put that cornerstone in. Then I sent my apostles and my prophets to establish the foundation, to, to establish something that would grow, that with every new believer, that building just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And I've got room for the entirety of the earth, but I've got one building. I've got one structure and it's my church. That's it. That's how we're doing this. My encouragement to you and maybe just what I felt in God to come and share with you today is to go all in where God goes all in. If God's all in on his church and he says, look, when my, when my people walk in community, when they stir one another up in love and good works, when they're experiencing the friction and they need to forgive one another, when they're contending together in prayer, fasting and praying and asking for things in my name when my church does what I called it to do. That's where I love to live. That's where I love to work. That is my choice. That's where I'm all in. So my encouragement to you is to say, okay, God, if you're all in on your church, I go where you go. There's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and it rests in the church of Jesus Christ and it goes where he goes. It doesn't mean we're not faulty and broken. There are some wretched things that happen at the hand of people who identify as the church. But we don't abandon the church because of some broken pieces. That's not how this works. God hasn't done that. God has not vacated his church. He hasn't left us. His presence rests currently with us until Revelation 21 is in full effect and his presence is here on earth with him present and the entirety of the earth is filled with his glory. We're it? Are you intimidated by that or is that like jack you up a little bit? Okay, I hope it jacks you up a little bit. That's a good thing. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I don't use the lingo. I don't know the words. But here, Anna, you could give yourself to this with your life. Everywhere you go, you're going to scatter from here. This is, this is a launching point. Chris has told you, you're going somewhere else with your life. Most of you are probably not Costa Mesa for life. Maybe. Maybe some of you are, but most of you will end up in other places. And his goal is to equip you to say, I want to go and I'm going to start churches around my table when I go. If Chris is going to function apostolically, that means that I'm going to go and I'm going to lay foundations, apostolic foundations. I'm going to invite the word of the prophet. I'm going to lay Jesus as the cornerstone. I'm going to see new churches get started everywhere I go. But it's through the church that Jesus is going to change the world. You might not be convinced of that, but God is. And when God speaks truth over you, what, what do you do? You listen and you obey. And so we walk in his story and we go where he goes. Can I pray that over us? Jesus, we believe you. And while I imagine there are some skeptical church experiences in this parking lot, There's not one skeptical, true God experience in this parking lot. 
you are always good, always trustworthy, always faithful, always merciful. God, you are who you are. And you're building your church. And you're using us as a part of it. And it's ever expanding, ever growing. And there's no end to the scope of your house because Jesus is your cornerstone. And so I pray for Genesis Church, Lord. I pray that this would be a church that is all in where you are all in. That is committed to hearing your voice and saying, where you go, I go. And you have said that this is where you are. I'm in my church. This is what you're building. This is what you're doing. So Lord, let us walk with you. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. It's in your name we pray.